Morning, New Hope. Glad that you are here. If you're joining us online, thank you for being part of what we're doing. We are going to dive into 1 Samuel this morning, so if you have a device with you or perhaps a hard copy of God's Word, you might want to turn there. You'll see the verses also up on the screen. If you're new to New Hope, we are working through a series called E2E, Eternity to Eternity. We started in the book of Genesis, going all the way to the book of Revelation. This morning, we're in 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, you are going to see that Samuel meets Jesus. It's a very interesting story. And if you grew up in Sunday school, you're likely to just say, oh, I know this story. I know all about this. Well, there is a lot of theology in what we're about to look at. Before we jump into it, I would love to pray with you, invite God to be our teacher. Would you join me in that? Father, we come before you with humble hearts. Grateful that we have musicians and that you cause music to be written and you gave us that as a gift. And we don't ever want to ignore that ability to praise you in song in ways that we can't even articulate in a daily conversation we're able to do in music. So thank you, Father, for the gift of worship leaders and musician and music. Thank you for the arts. And grateful also for your word and that you'll speak to us today, but we ask that you would do that through the work of the Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, guide us, instruct us, and we know that you are our teacher. So we welcome that, and in response, Father, I ask that you would allow us, put us in that place where we're willing to respond to what we see in your word. We ask for that in Jesus' matchless name, and all God's people said, amen. It is the nature of humanity. It is the nature of our repetitive sin to harden our hearts. Hear that again. It is the nature of repetitive sin to harden the heart of humans. So the natural instinct of humans, when we hear God's Word, is to prevent God's Word from having influence on our mind. Very simple illustration. Somebody finds themselves caught up in gossiping. We know what God's Word says about gossiping. It's very harmful. It's very destructive. Let's say a person is an individual who reads God's Word and they come across a passage that speaks about gossiping. And the natural instinct is to recoil, like, oh man, I don't want to hear that. Because the natural instinct is to hear our heart get harder and harder if we have repetitive sin in our life. And the, the more that we sin in a specific area, the harder the heart becomes. Now, I don't often start out with a foreign word, but I'm going to this morning. It's in your notes, and I want you to see it on the screen as well. It's the word debar. And when you think of the word word in the New Testament, it's the word logos. When you think of the word word in the Old Testament, it's the word debar. It's the Hebrew version of it, the Hebrew language. But read the definition very carefully, because when it's using this word, word, it's talking about a command, a promise, something that's being spoken. 
and instruction. You're going to see that come up a lot this morning. Now hear me on what we just started with. To some degree, a righteous person and a wicked person experience the exact same effect when they hear hard words. Initially, there's a recoil. I don't want to hear that. But the difference is in the final reaction. A righteous person, one who's been redeemed, after the initial recoil of hearing the hard thing, a righteous person responds in a restorative manner. Okay, I surrender. I get it. I get what God's calling me to do. I will respond to that. But an unsaved person, after the initial recoil, responds by continuing the behavior. Unfazed, like, what's the big deal with that? There's no reason for me to not do that. The exception to what I just talked about is if the Holy Spirit is doing work on someone's life who's not yet saved and bringing conviction to them and opening their eyes up. But that, that's a whole nother conversation. To arrive at the place where God's Word, His debar, where His Word can no longer move a person to a stage of any form of repentance, I think we would all agree that's a really dangerous place to be. If you're in that place where you just are totally numb to the things that God has to say, that's the danger zone. And we saw that last week in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2, where we learned that Eli completely neglected to honor God above his sons. In other words, he actually put his sons above God, and God called him out on it. And he sent what we called a, a prophet, a man of God, to confront him and get right in his face, admonish him and say, I'm warning you, you keep doing this, and there is going to be consequences. There will be disaster on your house. Now, it stands to reason that if God bothered to warn him and let him know, there was still the possibility of correction. However, I don't see in the story that the message had any visible effect on him. God, therefore, uses another way to get through to his mind, to stir his conscience, and he reveals himself to a boy by the name of Samuel, who you will discover this morning. And God does that through his debar, through his voice, God will speak to him, and it will be audible. Verse 1, now the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. Uh, visions is a technical term that's in the Bible. It's, it's used in place of the word revelation, revelation through a seer or through a prophet. And we're being told that this revelation, this information, these visions are very rare in this time. Why is there no revelation from God? Well, these are days of spiritual famine. We've already been told that everybody's doing as they see fit in their own eyes. Whatever they want to do, that's what they're doing. They're making up their own rules. So very few people walk with God. And it's not that Samuel's the only one walking with God, but there's very few who are. And so info from God is very limited. Now, at this point, it appears that Samuel is somewhere around 12 to 13 years of age. The Hebrew word is na'ar. That's typically used of someone who hasn't yet reached adolescence. 
And so he's a, a na'ar, which makes him 13 or younger, maybe 10, maybe 12, but he's right in that range. And verse 3 says, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So of all people in all of the nation, Samuel is the closest to the throne of God, if, if God's throne is the ark of the covenant. And he's laying down, but he's not right in the Holy of Holies because that'd be forbidden. So there's the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies, but there's the holy place. And in the holy place is where the lamp of God is, and that's where the table of showbread is, and that's where Samuel sleeps apparently. And so his encounter with the Debar, with the Word of God, begins before dawn. Sun hasn't come up yet because the lamp of God hasn't gone out yet. And he's got the responsibility of keeping the lamp of God lit. Now, it's a very casual statement in that verse, but most people aren't spending time looking at what is that? Well, we've got an image that was created by our graphic artist here at New Hope. Her name is Darla, and Darla created it this week, and we're going to put this on the screen for you. I'm guessing most of you have seen menorahs around Christmas time in people's windows. We're going to leave that up there for a minute so that you understand what is going on with the lamp of God is this six-foot, five-and-a-half-foot-tall golden lampstand that's in the holy place. It doesn't have those labels on it that you see, but all the ancients understood that the lamp of God with this seven-branched lampstand is a representation of the Spirit of God's presence. So this is the way they understood it. And I'll just read it to you the way that you're looking at it here with these titles. The center column is known as the, the Spirit of the Lord, and then there's the branches, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of power, the Spirit of the knowledge of the Lord, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. I want you to hold that in your mind as I read to you from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. This is just kind of an aside, but it feeds into what we're talking about this morning. So if you're making notes, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 reads this way. You won't see it come on the screen. Just look at the menorah and listen to this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, center column, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Who's that talking about? It's the Jesus answer. It's Jesus. It's talking about the Messiah. When the Messiah arrives, he will be unlike anyone else who's ever walked on the face of the earth. He will have the sevenfold presence of the Holy Spirit within him. And so you find Luke in chapter 3 writing that when Satan came to tempt Jesus and he was driven into the wilderness, Luke starts out by saying he was full of the presence of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, Jesus is full of the Spirit. Revelation describes the sevenfold Spirit, not seven spirits, but the sevenfold presence of the Holy Spirit of God that comes right there from Isaiah chapter 11 when it's projecting what the Messiah will look like. So Samuel as a boy has the responsibility of making sure that there's olive oil in every one of those cups 
because those cups on the top of the seven branches represent the spirit of God's presence because the Ark of the Covenant is on the other side of the curtain. And he's got to make sure all night long that thing never goes out. And in the midst of that, we get verse 4. The Lord called Samuel and he said, here, am I, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he answered, I did not call my son, lie down again. I just pause there for a second. This voice is completely new to Samuel. He's not heard it before. He's groggy. It's the middle of the night. He's not sure where it's coming from. So he repeatedly runs to this aged priest by the name of Eli, verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the debar, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. So the Lord, Yahweh, so Yahweh called Samuel again for the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. And Eli discerned that Yahweh, the Lord, was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. So God's about to speak. Dabar Yahweh, if you're going to put the two together. Dabar Yahweh, the word of the Lord in the Old Testament. And what's God going to do in this moment? He's going to deliver this message of judgment and the expectation from God is that Samuel will in turn take this word of God and deliver this information to Eli. Now, Samuel's willing to serve. He just doesn't recognize it's God that's calling him. But this is really important because this relates to you. But because he's willing, he's enabled to know the Lord when the Word is revealed to him. And that's exactly how every person comes to faith in a relationship with Jesus. God reveals himself, his Word is there, and the person receives the Word, they're enabled to understand the Word, and therefore God invites them into that relationship. That's how everybody, every person in this auditorium came to know Jesus. God revealed himself through the Word of God. So we've got this 12-year-old guy, maybe 10 years old, laying on his bed. I'm thinking his eyes are bug wide open at this point. He's been serving literally since he was a toddler in this place. And now he's waiting for the creator of the universe to speak to him. And mind you, not an angel, not a prophet, but God himself is going to come into his bedroom. And we're told this in verse 7, that the word, the debar, has not yet been revealed, but very soon it will be. So church, who is the Word of God? Come on, it's the Jesus answer again, making it easy for you, okay? You guys forget this is participatory, right? So who is the Word of God? Jesus, yeah, the one you were just singing about. So we find John writing a remarkable statement in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the Logos, 
or if in Hebrew, in the beginning was the debar, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing came into being without Him. Everything came into being through Him. So this one is the source of truth. And because that's true, because Jesus is the truth, truth must be delivered that night to Samuel as hard as it is to hear because God the Son is the Word of God, this must be a pre-incarnate arrival of Jesus. Remember, God the Son becomes Jesus the man. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the great three-in-one. God the Son becomes Jesus the man. We find Him showing up here in the Old Testament, a pre-incarnate arrival of Jesus, and this time the Lord, Yahweh, came and stood in his bedroom, suggesting to us that Samuel now actually sees and hears him. It's a theophany, verse 10. Then the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. That is the perfect response to God, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't we all love to say, I always responded that way. Speak, God, I'm listening. We don't always respond. That's the perfect way. You're looking at the tenderness and the purity of a 12-year-old or a 10-year-old mind. Speak, God. I'm ready to hear you. So he's standing in his room, calls Samuel's name, notice that, twice. And I take it as compelling him to a reaction. Think of all the times in the Bible when God shows up and says, Moses, Moses. Saul, Saul, Samuel, Samuel. Every time, actually, whenever you see God showing up twice in Scripture and saying the name twice, He's compelling that individual to a turning point in their life. And they have to determine how they're going to respond to the Word. Verse 11, here comes the Word of God. Then Yahweh, then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, for I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them." Therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. How do you like the responsibility of delivering that information as a 12-year-old? Here you go, Samuel. Here's your first sermon. Good luck with that. He's got the hard news. And the natural inclination of humans... When we hear hard news is to recoil, I don't want to do that. I don't want that responsibility. Now, God doesn't tell Samuel what the punishment will be. He's simply saying, I have not forgotten. Payment is due. But the terrifying details that he does give him is confirming that the judgment is absolutely real. There has been blatant sin and no sign of remorse whatsoever. 
Push down in verse 13 with me and look at that very closely. Verse 13, for the iniquity which he knew. Through the E2E study, I've been telling you that when you see the word know or knew in the Old Testament, it is the word yada in Hebrew. The yada means to know in an intimate way, to have relationship with. And God's saying he knew this in a very intimate way. This is part of his world. And yet he did not rebuke his sons. Now, in some instances, when prophetic messages come to individuals, it could be conditional warnings, like when God shows up and speaks to Jonah, and Jonah has to go to Nineveh and say, hey, if you don't turn, God's going to torch this place. But this is not conditional here. There's been a clear crossing of the line, and the punishment is promised. It will become a reality. And Eli will bear the brunt of the responsibility because he fails to carry out his responsibility and there's been no rebuke. Check this, church. His conscious sin is so high and so deliberate that God goes to the point of saying, yeah, that, that can never be atoned for. There's no sacrifice that's going to take care of that one. So he goes on to say, the magnitude of this is so shocking. What I'm going to do, it's going to cause everyone who hears of it for their ears to tingle. There's only one other place in the Bible where God refers to that, with the ears tingling. Jeremiah 19, when God sends Israel off into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Jeremiah has to be the one to bear the news to everybody. And he says, it's going to make everybody's ears hurt. Everybody's ears are going to tingle when they hear this information. And God says that exact same thing is happening here. Now, while I'm sure that Samuel is absolutely thrilled to hear the actual voice of God, like, how cool would that be? It's what the word, what the debar delivers in the way of information that actually causes someone, even a 12-year-old, to want to recoil. Oh, man, that's hard news. Verse 15, so Samuel lay down until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, but Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. I bet he didn't sleep a wink. I wouldn't. So with the arrival of the morning comes his daily responsibilities, and part of his daily responsibilities is opening the doors. He's done it many, many times before, but the difference here is... He doesn't want to see Eli. So he's trying to busy himself, trying to take on these daily tasks so he doesn't have to actually face him. Now, I think if we did a survey of the auditorium or checked with all the people who watch through the, the broadcast, we, we would find unanimously people would say, I would love to hear God's voice audibly. I wish he'd show up in my bedroom. That'd be cool to have him give me some instructions that specifically. Until, until we stop to consider what that actually means. Because if you study Scripture, what you find when God does speak generally, it's not information you want to have to relay to people that you know. Moses, Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh's house, and you're going to pronounce plagues on him. John, I want you to write the book of Revelation, and I want you to tell everybody about the end of this planet. 
when God does speak, if it's not comforting words, it's compelling words to deliver really hard details. Case in point, Samuel is not elated by this information, and definitely he's not in a hurry to deliver it. Yet, note this, to his credit, when he's called on to reveal the details, he doesn't conceal anything. The news is dreadful, but he is faithful to bring the whole counsel of God and not hide information in any form, even bringing the hard things. I just bear my heart to you for a minute. The elders know this about me. Since we launched this church in 2007, I have had a personal desire, a strong desire that New Hope Church would be known for having the fortitude and the devotion to declare the whole counsel of God, hiding nothing. To do anything less is to ignore all that God demands. So no half-truths, no watered-down materials, no mushy middle, and worst of all, not compromising or altering God's Word in any way to conform to culture. It's a great desire of this church. God let it be that it would always be the case here. So we carry all this forward knowing that now Samuel's got this huge responsibility. He's got to deliver the hard news, verse 16. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son? And he said, here I am. And he said, what is the word? What is the debar that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. Now, if the news is painful for Samuel to have to deliver, how much more so for Eli to have to hear from a child, no less, verse 18. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is Yahweh, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now, perhaps it's because of his great age, perhaps because he understands the sovereignty of God. He's been a high priest for a long, 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 long time. For whatever reason, he has resolved in his mind that it is futile to protest. But I got to tell you, church, I am personally confused why there is nothing there of Eli collapsing on his knees and begging for the mercy of God. I don't see it. It's not written there. I don't know why, I'll ask one day when I get to eternity, but this guy knows there's mercy with God, and yet he's not asking for it. And the Bible is incredibly clear. Not a jot or a tittle of God's Word can ever fail, and it's been years since this man of God showed up and got in Eli's face and said, there's severe judgments coming against your house. And if we've learned anything through the E2E study, it's that God is gracious and long-suffering and patient. Amen? He's been patient with me. I know He's patient with you. He's been patient a long, long time with Eli. And there is a point when the tolerance of God ends. And in chapter 4, God's patience is exhausted 
Go with me to verse 2 of chapter 4. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord, why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. You've been learning through the E2E series that the Philistines are the number one enemy of Israel. They are the descendants of the Aegean people. We would call them the people of the sea. That's what archaeologists call, call them. They, so they started out around Greece, made their way down the Mediterranean coast, and they became a force, a brutal force to be reckoned with in this area. They are part of the Aegean culture. They arrived somewhere around 1200 B.C. And to this point, the Philistines have kept Israel in subjection since the death of Samson. They're so powerful that they gave their name to the area. Philistine, interpreted in the newer language, was called Palestine or Palestine, to which today we have the term Palestinians. And so you find the Palestinians and the Israelites warring back here in 1100 B.C. And Israel is defeated not once but twice. And the first battle, they lose 4,000 guys, which is horrible. And for perspective, in World War II on D-Day at Normandy, we lost 2,500 soldiers, and that event is burned into the conscience national memory. For them, they lost 4,000 in one battle. So they're left asking, what in the world is going on? So verse 3, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today, not the Philistines? Now that's an interesting perspective. They're not saying the Philistines have better tanks or their F-18 pilots are way better than ours. They're saying, why has God done this? Everyone is baffled by this disaster, and they're asking, what are we doing? Because they recognize this is not normal. This is not a normal military encounter. Something is seriously off kilter. Something is wrong spiritually. So the national leaders, they devise a quick, no-nonsense plan, which they think is really logical, and their thinking is, we own the big gun. Let's get out the big gun, the ultimate weapon, and be done with this whole mess. We're going to aim God at them. We'll take Him out with that missile. And so they announce that they need the Ark of the Covenant, at which you begin to think, okay, and I'm beginning to hear the theme song, dun 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 but it's not Indiana Jones. Look who shows up with the Ark of the Covenant to escort it of all people, verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, those guys, they were there with the Ark of the Covenant. It's extraordinarily dangerous. Anytime Hophni and Phinehas are mentioned, you know it's not going to end well, and this is not going to end well. 
So the leaders of the nation and Hophni and Phinehas think that they've got God in a box. And they're so blind to the real issue of sin, they cannot discern that the power and the presence of God has departed. New Hope Church, what is missing? Exactly, zero prayer. There's nobody falling on their knees. What is the Lord doing to us? Well, it'd be a good thing to ask Him. Why is God letting this happen? How about you go to the source and ask for His will? Instead, they arrive with a really quick man-contrived scheme to solve a spiritual issue. And anytime we try and solve a spiritual issue with a man-made scheme, it always falls short. Now, mind you, if God wants to deal defeat to these people, 1,000 arcs of the covenant will not bring success. But in the elders' mind, we'll give them credit for this, in the elders of the nation's mind, they understand that if God is not with them, defeat is certain. So they mistakenly assume that wherever the ark is, that's where the Lord is. What they fail to fathom is that the ark is not an amulet. It is not a trinket. It is not Aladdin's lamp. God cannot be used that way. It is not a military-grade weapon. Can I just say that God is not a genie? And you don't just rub a lamp and make Him appear? There is only one formula that God gives for getting Him to respond and be involved. Look with me at this formula, 2 Chronicles 7. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn. What's turning? Well, that's repenting. Go in one direction, decide. I got to go the other way. I got to turn from my wicked ways. God says, then I'll hear from heaven. Then I will forgive and then I will heal. So you have the advantage of 3,000 years of history. You're living in 2024. You can look back over time. You have the historical advantage. If you were advising them as to what steps to take, what would you recommend? Well, first and foremost, how about getting rid of the wrong leaders? N nothing but trouble comes from these guys. So they've got to get rid of the wrong leaders. And next, maybe returning to true worship and to moral obedience. That's exactly what God says you guys have got to do. And I can tell you, church, through many, many years of doing life with God, just speaking of Mark myself, my wife and I have learned that there are no shortcuts to life with God. You cannot package God in a box. And to the great regret of many churches in the United States, and God, I hope you prevent us from ever doing this, many churches attempt to put God in a box all the time. They're, they're looking for success based on the next new model. And while it may produce short-term results and it may get a lot of people clapping and happy and cheering, thinking, we've landed on the next new thing, 
In the end, there's no shortcuts. It's the hard work of day in and day out decisions, making godly choices every day of your life, personally and nationally. Back into the story to finish it up. Eli is 98 years old, and he's been informed of the strategy. He knows what they're thinking they're going to do, and he's anticipating that evil is at hand in great anxiety. His heart is trembling for the ark of God. Verse 5, as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded, meaning literally to vibrate. It, It shook. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. If you've been to Spartan Stadium or maybe you've been to the Breslin Center and you've been watching a sporting event and you decide you want to get up from your seat and head to the concession stand because maybe you're looking for a drink or you want something to eat and you only get to the concession stand and you suddenly hear this massive roar come from inside the stadium, you know you just missed out on something. And you're like, oh, what happened? In everybody's eyes, you watch them at the concession stands, they all look instantly towards the screens or the stadium. What did I miss? That's exactly what's being described here. What is going on? What are we missing? Well, I'm picturing a whole lot of high-fiving going on in the Israelite camp because they're thinking, yes, both of our starting quarterbacks are here. Phineas and Hoffman showed up. And we've got the Ark of the Covenant. We've got God in a box. So the roar arouses the Philistines' interest, and they are very superstitious. And to them, the arrival of the Ark means the coming of a God because all of the neighboring countries in the Middle East carried their gods in little amulets or little trinkets, and they carried them into battle. And they're thinking as... Some kind of God just showed up here. Verse 7, the Philistines were afraid for they said God, and they don't use the word Yahweh here, they use the word Elohim, which is God generic. God has come into the camp, and they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight." Keep going, verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died because God's Word never fails. That's precisely what God said was going to happen. Eli, your two sons are going to die, and they're going to both die in the same day. And disaster is going to come upon all of Israel and upon your household. So even though the ark is present, this defeat is far more severe than the previous one. The word makah is used there. It's talking about a massive slaughter, far beyond the loss of the 4,000. The exact same word is used of the Egyptian plagues when God destroyed the nation of Egypt. So they've sustained heavy losses, and the sins of Eli's sons have produced horrendous casualties. 
And Hophni and Phinehas receive judgment, and the Philistines capture the ark, and that's for next week. And I'm not going to leave you hanging. There's two more paragraphs we need to read to set us up for next week. Verse 12. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road eagerly watching because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and they all, the city, cried out. The last Hebrew word in your notes this morning is the word karad, and it's describing what's going on with Eli. He is literally, physically shaking. He's trembling at the core because he knows this is going to end really, really bad. And public magistrates always sat on a seat near the entrance of the city, usually an elevated seat which allowed them to be in a, a position of a judge. That's where Eli's at. It's a, it's a custom that was carried over from the Egyptians. These seats, these thrones did not have backs on them. So we find Eli sitting in that kind of a seat and he's shaking and he's 98 years old and he's severely obese and he's totally blind and this messenger arrives with his clothes tattered and dust on his head, which is never the way you want your messenger to show up from the battle line. You want them to show up saying, hey, everything went really good. That's not the way he's showing up. He's filthy. And he's in mourning. And he says, there has been a massive slaughter. 30,000 more guys have gone down. Now check this. Eli is not doubting that God is able to protect his ark. He has every reason to doubt whether he will protect it because he knows how wicked his sons are and he knows this plan was not arrived at through God. And beyond that, he knows the Philistines and he knows they would do anything they could to get their hands on the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 14, when Eli heard the noises of the outcry, he said, what does the noise of this commotion mean? And the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, how did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate and his neck was broken and he died for he was old and heavy. So he hears the chaos and he needs to know what is going on. He's already trembling and suspecting evil. And he gets the report in four stages. Israel has run away from the battle. There has been a massive slaughter. Your sons are dead, and the ark has been taken. And very sadly, it is not Hophni and Phinehas' death that causes him to have a shock of reaction. It's the loss of the ark, which I understand the shock of reaction to that. It's too much for him. 
But there's not that kind of response to his son's death because he knew the judgment had been pronounced. But Eli's death and his son's death, it does not end the tragedy of this story. Finish it out with me on this one, verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was pregnant and about to give birth, and when she heard the news of the ark of God, was, that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has, was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. And to this day, you are not going to find the name Ichabod in best baby names book. <laughs> and if you're thinking of using it, don't. The glory of God is gone. Who wants that label? I, if I'm the child, I'm going to change my name as soon as I can. Echoing, echoing throughout these last couple of weeks in my mind as I've been working through this is what's been echoing through my mind when I started studying this when I was a teenager. What's going through my mind is Hebrews chapter 10. Look with me specifically at verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. It's the willfulness issue. It's not the, oh man, I stumbled again today. It's talking about the repetitive sin over and over and over. And it is the nature of repetitive sin to harden the heart so that our natural instinct is to prevent God's Word from having any effect on our mind and any influence whatsoever. The willfulness of repetitive sin over and over, and God has to say, okay, there no longer remains a sacrifice for somebody like that. They're not interested in the things of God. So we've seen God's Word speak loudly and clearly in multiple ways to Eli and his sons, and I find in their life it's the willfulness issue. The most damning component of this story is that the warnings came and they completely ignored them. And the hard heart grows out of this issue. As humans, we have the capacity to convince ourselves that we know better than God. I've got it figured out. That might have applied to them, but that doesn't apply to me. Which leads me to this conclusion, church. If today you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, praise God because you yielded your heart before your heart became too hard. And that happened through the power of the Holy Spirit. God opened your eyes to allow you to see the Word of God and respond to the Word of God. It's amazing. Praise God, New Hope, that you saw the light if you are truly a person who follows Jesus Christ. 
See, it's such a stunning thing when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ. We're told that the angels celebrate in heaven. This last week, my wife's mom, Kay Dantema, living in central Ohio at 85, 86 years of age, led a woman in her assisted living facility into faith in Jesus Christ. That woman is, yeah, right. The woman she led to faith in Christ is 90 years of age. And her response to Kay in the conversation was this, why didn't anyone tell me this stuff before? Which really does tug at your heart like, oh man. She lived her entire life not in relationship with Jesus. But praise God, she came to faith in Jesus at the end. And it's such a stunning thing when someone of that age group comes to faith in Christ, which immediately reminds me of the thief on the cross. It's never too late. That's just what is the person going to do with the information? So here's how I close. If you in your life are praying for someone in your life, your social circle, your work circle, your family circle, if you're praying for someone who has not yet seen the light of Jesus, pray specifically that God would remove the blinders, that God would soften their hearts to the truth of His Word. So pray this way, and I, I mean pray specifically. Pray that they would hear the debar, the Word of God. Pray that they would know the Word of God, and pray that they would surrender their life to the Word of God. That's what's expected of us. Pray, lift them up before the Father, that God would intervene. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are compelled to respond to the things you call us to because your Word convicts. Both the believer and the non-believer, your word convicts. And so we put ourselves before you right now, many, 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 many believers in this auditorium and online. Father, that you would move us to respond by praying for those individuals who do not yet know you and be willing to speak the truth in love into their life, as hard as it is that we wouldn't recoil from that responsibility, but that we would embrace it and we would be like Samuel and encourage your activity in our life. I do pray, Father, for the hundreds and thousands represented by this auditorium who are not yet in faith in Christ, but yet they know people who attend here. God, that you would use us to influence those individuals that they might know what it is to have forgiveness of sin because of a relationship with Jesus. That's what we ask for. We ask for that in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great week, New Hope.